Well, afternoon. Good to see some uh, visiting uh, Ruskies here. <laughs> Good to see you all. Um, would you please pray with me as we, before we open the word here? Uh, Father, we thank you for this day. We, we ask for the grace to understand your word. We ask that your spirit would illumine our heart to the truth. May you conform us to that which we understand for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so come and teach us, Lord. We ask these things for your sake and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Galatians chapter 4, if you would open your Bibles there, please. Obviously, we've been working through this epistle these last few months. We've made it to chapter 4. Our text is verses 12 through 20. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. And before we read it here, just to kind of get us prepared for this, as we come to this text... The Apostle Paul sets aside his doctrinal arguments and his theological arguments to come at these Galatian believers with his emotions. This is one of the most emotional texts in the New Testament. It's, 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 there's not a lot of theology. There's some as you get down to verse 19 and such. But this is an, an emotional plea from the heart of the Apostle. And here we will see a glimpse of the heart of a good shepherd who is an under-shepherd of the great shepherd. And you see a man's love for, for the church, a man who's called to shepherd and preach, and you see his great affection for these people. And as you know from our time together, in this letter, the Apostle Paul has been defending, arguing, and explaining the gospel of grace. He's been telling strongly the error that has come against them is to be rejected. False teachers from the Judaizers, from Jerusalem, Jews, came into the churches of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, came there, and they were teaching that faith in Christ, which is Paul's message, is not enough for salvation, that you must be circumcised, you must live by the law of Moses in order to be saved. That was their assault, that was their message. Now, this is obviously contrary to the message of Paul. It's contrary to the message of the other apostles. It's contrary to the message of Christ. It's contrary to truth. It, it's not true. It's a lie. And so the tone of this letter, since the beginning, since the very early verses of chapter 1, is terse. It's somewhat harsh. It's confrontive. It is a rebuke. It is a reproof of these people falling prey to false teaching. There's, there's no warm words of brotherhood found until you come to our passage here. Now, the passion and the fire contained within this letter reveals the seriousness of the matter at hand. The gospel, as you and I know from the Bible, we know the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. That's Romans 1.16. It alone can save spiritually dead sinners from the eternal wrath of God, and only the gospel can do that. And there's only one true gospel. 
The Judaizers, as we know, were perverting the truth, and the Galatians were abandoning the truth for the lie. The key text, just to remind us, of Galatians is 2.16, which says this. This is, this is, in a nutshell, Galatians. He says that we know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 21 of chapter 2 kind of expands even further the seriousness of the matter and why Paul is so terse in his Uh, opposition to false teaching here. In 2.21 of Galatians, he says this, that if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Then there was no sense in him dying if you can save yourself by keeping the law of Moses. Now the tone of this letter is found in the opening verses. Just listen to how Paul opens in chapter 1, verse 6, 7, and 8. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort, twist the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed, damned. Paul says, anybody comes with a gospel that's different than the one that I preached, let him go to hell, is what he says. That's pretty serious. That's very serious. That's the tone, then, of Galatians, as you know. And when you get a further example of this tone in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, you foolish Galatians... Who has bewitched you? He calls them fools. To follow a gospel of works apart from the gospel of grace is to be a fool, says Paul. So you should go to hell if you come and preach another gospel. You're a fool if you follow that gospel. And he's been spending four chapters explaining, defending the gospel of grace and proving from Old Testament and Abrahamic covenant and all through the Bible and showing to these Galatians, that the gospel that Paul preached, the gospel of grace, is the one true gospel and the one message that God has been presenting to mankind ever since the beginning, that salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, in God alone. Okay, that is the message. So, when you get to chapter 5 of Galatians, listen to what he says here. This is all around our text, but it it, it feeds into our text. In Galatians 5, two verses, 3 and 4. Do you see them there? Again, the seriousness of the matter. He says, And I testify again in 5.3 that every man who receives circumcision, because that's what the legalizers were saying, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You can't pick and choose. Verse 4, the seriousness of it. Look at verse 4. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. That's pretty serious. That's pretty serious. That's why Paul is so terse in his confrontation here. And if you go back to chapter 4, verse 9, listen, here's, he, he's befuddled by these people, these Galatians. In 4.9, he, he says in 4.9, Look what he says. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, and then this question, 
How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? And then verse 11, he says, I fear for you, for perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Has my work been worthless? And so he's worried about their salvation because they are so eagerly swayed, falling back under legalism. Okay? He's, he's just can't, he can't imagine why they would do that. And so Paul is not convinced that his work will bear spiritual fruit, and he has fear that they're going to walk away from Christ into legalism. So he's, he's, he's very confrontive. And when you come to our text, chapter 4, verse 12, the apostle bears his heart to them. He reveals his love for them, but he also reminds them of the love that they once had for him when he first came there, probably two and a half, three years ago. In fact, they welcomed him, he says in our passage, as though he was Christ Jesus himself. They had such a joy when God converted them and a contentment in their soul as a result of the regeneration of the spirit of this new birth and the forgiveness of their sin, they would have sacrificed themselves for Paul. They were so, so content, so happy, and loved him so much. But since the Judaizers came with their legalism, they now saw Paul as an enemy. And it's, it's worth noting and in, 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 to make it relevant to us today that legalism separates the closest of friends. Doctrinal error causes disunity in churches. Legalism fractures gospel friendships. Legalism seduces the flesh because it stirs our pride. It produces self-righteousness and breeds sinful competition and it breeds contempt for others who we deem not quite at our level, right? That's what legalism does. We bite, we bite and devour. We try to destroy instead of edify and upbuild. Legalism does that. For instance, look at chapter 5 and look at verse 14 and 15. Look at what it says. The whole law is fulfilled, 514, in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, Love, but look at what's contrasted in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. That's what legalism produces. Biting and devouring, trying to consume. Finally, look at verse 26 in chapter 5, the last verse. Legalism produces this. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. That's the product of legalism. If that is in a body, you know that it's a legalistic body. It is void of grace. Grace does not live in that arena right there. But legalism does. And Paul hates it. And he gets after it. And he's pleading with these people. And so shall we. We will fight, as Paul is, for the purity of the gospel of grace. But we're going to do so with Christ-like affection. Right? We're going to battle for the purity of the gospel of grace, but we will do so with a Christ-like affection. And Paul will show us here. If you pick up your text in verse 12 of chapter 4, let's read through 20 and see the heart of the Apostle Paul. And he's going to remind them of, of how they used to love him, and then he will at the end show how much he loves them. Verse 12, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. 
You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. When the, when, where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children, my kindred, <laughs> with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. There's not much doctrine there, but there's a man's heart pleading with people he loves to come back from legalism back to grace. Okay? Now look at where he begins and he, as he reminds them in verse 12 through 15 of their attitude towards him. And he starts with Paul's plea there in verse 12, I beg of you, brethren. First of all, he calls them brethren. So he's, he hasn't thrown them away just yet. He's, he's not denying their salvation, though they're getting close to not being considered saved. But he, he throws them all under the umbrella of brethren because he's talking to the church as a whole. And he says, I beg you, brethren, the word for beg is a strong word. It's a passionate word. I beg of you. I, I ask of you. In a number of languages, the, the rendering of this has this idea of strongly asking. It has the idea of urging you with pleading. It can have the meaning, I, I, I speak to you with my heart exposed. That's kind of the idea. It, it is, it's basically Paul saying, please listen to me for what I am saying is very important. And I want you to hear this. It is crucial for you to hear this. And so the apostle says, I beg of you, brethren. And notice what his plea is in verse 12. He says, become as I am. Become as I am. An intense, the, the plea is intensified by this this exhortation, become as I am. What's he meaning by that? Well, look at what he says. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. In the context of Galatians, what, what is Paul like that he wants them to be like, I think has to do with become like me in the sense that I'm free from the law. I'm no, long, no longer under Mosaic authority. The law has accomplished its purpose by bringing me to Christ. And now, since I've come to faith in Christ, I'm no longer under the law. He wants them to be like him. When, when Paul came to the Galatians, he didn't come with Moses' stipulations and regulations and laws to obey. He came in the freedom of the resurrected Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law of Moses. And he came preaching the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants them to remember that. He wants them to become as he is. Get out from under the law, Galatians. I came like you. Now think about it. When he came to Galatia, talking to, to the Gentiles, 
They were not under Moses' law because they were ignorant of Moses' law. So here comes a Jew saying, I'm just like you. I'm out from under the law. So his plea, his exhortation is, hey, I'm not under law. I'm like you. Now I want you to become like me. But isn't it ironic that the Gentiles are wanting to go underneath the Mosaic law, under the Mosaic domination? They're going back into legalism, that which they weren't under when Paul got there. So it's fascinating that he, he says in 2.19, Paul does, he says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. He wants them to be like him, out from under the law out from under legalism. He wants them to become free. The next section that, that will be addressed in Galatians in the weeks ahead is going to emphasize the freedom that we have in Christ. And that's what he wants them to be like. He wants them to, to experience again the freedom in Christ that I have, Paul says. And I want you to be like me because I'm like you. I'm out from under the law. Now, this whole appeal is connected to Paul's attitude toward the law, as we've been saying, and he's exhorting these Galatians to imitate him. In other words, abandon the law as a means of being reconciled to God. Don't, don't see Moses as the means of justification. It's like Paul said to the Corinthians. Do you remember when he said in Corinthians 1 Corinthians 9, 20 and 21, he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, he says, as under the law, though not being myself under the law. He was willing to live as though he was under the law, not giving credence to Moses, but trying to win converts to Christ. And when they came to Christ, they're not going to live under the law. They're going to live in the freedom of Christ. And he, he goes on to say, not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, Gentiles, as without law. Though not being without the law of God, he says, but under the law of Christ. Why? So that I might win those who are without law. Do you see his emphasis is the gospel? His emphasis is the salvation of sinners. And if it helps assist the gospel in getting into a culture, Paul says, I'll live however you live in order to win you over to Christ. And once Christ delivers you, you're going to be freed and delivered from the law of Moses. So this is what he's saying. I plead with you, Galatians. Be free from the law. Be like me as I am like you. And that's verse 12 there. Now look what he goes on to say in verse 12, the, the rest of that verse. He says, you have done me no wrong, and I think this is going to connect to the next verses that follow. You didn't do me any harm in verse 12. You didn't do any injustice to me. You didn't mistreat me, is what he's saying, when I came to you at first. Verse 13 is fascinating. Look what it says. Paul's basically saying, I showed up in Galatia by accident, and I wasn't planning to come. In the providence of God, he made me sick, and I had to stop where you guys hung out. And isn't that fascinating? God's providence, that's how the gospel got to these people. And look at, verse, look at what he says in verse 13. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. 
And in verse 14, he goes on and says, And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. Well, notice the connection, please. In verse 14, he says, That which was a trial, and that's connected to verse 13, to the bodily illness. So the, whatever the bodily illness was, and there's, there's 6,000 acres of trees killed, and people have um, ideas as to what that is, but there's no definitive answer to be found, so I'm not going to kill any more trees. I'm just going to use the text here, right? It could be a numerous anything. It could be his eyes. It could be his stomach. It could be anything, the problem that he had. But the problem that he had was a bodily illness, okay? So he was sick. And notice what it says in verse 13. This bodily illness, verse 14, that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition. Whatever it was, it was so bad, it was a trial for them to be in the presence of Paul. It was the same word for temptation. His appearance was apparently bad enough that it would cause many people to turn away and reject him. But not these to whom he's writing. Because look at what he writes there in verse 14. You did not despise or loathe me. The word despise is disdain or scorn or contempt. They didn't look at Paul and his condition, which must have been somewhat kind of gross. They didn't look down their nose at him. And they didn't loathe him. And the word loathe is a word that literally means to spit out of their mouth. Like, right? It's not, it's... It's like the Laodicean church. If you don't repent, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Right? So what, what Paul is saying, I came to you when I first came, and I stopped in your region where you were because of a sickness, and a sickness that was so visible that it made people reject me and made them curse me, spit me out, hate me, but you guys didn't. You guys didn't. Now, he's reminding them of how they first saw him. Now, look at what, think of this. Paul's a Jew, came into the presence of these Gentiles, a stranger with a physical ailment that was repulsive enough that it was a temptation for them to reject him, to walk away from him. He came, think of this, preaching the gospel of God And God converted many of them through his preaching, even though he's in this physical condition. Now, why would they be tempted to reject him? Well, think about this setting. Here you are in your home city. Here comes this stranger preaching. He has some kind of an ailment that's like muy feo. You know, it's just, it's it's ugly and sick and stinkies, right? And he came preaching a strange God. He's not preaching any gods they've ever heard of, right? And he's preaching a God who's powerful enough to raise the dead, because he's preaching Christ, okay? And he's powerful enough to forgive the sins of those who place their faith in this Christ. And here is the spokesman for this powerful God who's so sick, he can hardly walk and see. And his sickness is so... How powerful must that God be when his number one spokesman is in such a deplorable condition? Isn't that fascinating? But they did not reject him. They did not spit him out as cursed, even though he looked the way he did. What is that proving? What is this showing? Look at at what it says in verse 14. 
Instead of rejecting him, they received him. The word received is to like welcome into your house. These people, instead of rejecting this deplorable stranger preaching strange gods, they actually welcomed him. They actually received him. What is that showing but the power of God in their souls to overcome that which most people are rejecting? You know what that's saying? They looked beyond his appearance and listened to his words. And God granted them faith in the gospel of grace from such a deplorable preacher. That's fascinating, right? It's fascinating. Because wouldn't, wouldn't a God so powerful have the rich and the mighty and the good-looking representing him here on this earth instead of us? <laughs> You're right? Like Corinthians says, look around you, not many noble, not many wise. That's a fact, <laughs> right? That, you know why it's that way? So that it's the power of God that is exalted and the grace of God that's lifted high, you see. And this is what Paul is saying. He's reminding them and he's pleading with them to abandon this legalism. Come back to the grace of God. Do you remember when I first came? It wasn't with the law of Moses and I was in such a deplorable state, but yet you heard the words that I preached and God saved you. He says there in 14, he says, but you received me, you welcomed me. And look at to the extent of their welcome. You welcomed me as an angel of God, an angelos, a, a messenger of God. It's probably speaking of an angelic being as we would understand it, as opposed to merely a messenger, like a preacher. This is emphasizing, I do believe, some, they, he says, you welcome me into your presence as though I was an angelic being from the presence of Almighty God instead of this deplorable, sick, strange preacher, right? That shows the work of grace in their heart. They listened to his word instead of looking at his appearance. They weren't challenged by that. Wow, they saw, they saw him as a glorious creature because of the, of the message that he preached. Dude, makes you want to go out and preach grace. <laughs> preach Christ, right? They overlooked his sickness, they heard his message, and God granted him faith. But look at what else. He goes even further. They received him as Christ himself. Wow. They welcomed him into their presence as though he was the son of God himself. That's amazing. That is so amazing. I just, it's, it's worth meditating on. How would you welcome Christ into your home? You would eagerly, enthusiastically, joyfully, openly welcome him into your home. And you, yes, you would. You would be like Mary instead of like Martha. You would be like Mary who sat at his feet eagerly to hear every word that came from his mouth. That's how you would welcome. And that's how they welcomed Paul into their presence because he spoke the truth. And the Holy Spirit assisted Paul in his message, you see. That's good stuff. Hmm. To be in his presence is a happy spot. And Paul reminds them, he's reminding them there in, in those verses of how they used to feel about him. Now, go, look, he goes on in verse 15. He says, where? Where then is that sense of blessing you had? He's, he's, he's having them recall what it was like when they were first converted when Paul came into their presence. And preach the gospel. The sense of blessing. 
What does he meaning by that? It's, it's, it's a, an attitude, a feeling of happiness or satisfaction, and maybe a better word is contentment. You Galatians had a sense of contentment when the gospel came to you and you believed the word. As a result of their faith in Christ and the forgiveness of their sins and the new life of the spirit, the burden of sin gone. As everyone who has experienced the regenerative power of Jesus Christ can attest, the burden is gone. The burden is lifted. There is no longer this darkness and this doubt and this burden of sin. There's now the rejoicing in the forgiveness and the freedom that God gives you immediately. It is a work of grace. It's the message of the gospel. It's a work of the Spirit. And this is what he's saying. Where is that sense of blessing you had when you were saved? Where is that? That new life. They, they experience what Jesus said in Matthew 11 when he says, Come unto me, you who are what? Weary and heavy laden. And I will give you what? More burdens? Rest. Rest for what? Your back? No, your soul. Your soul. They experience that. Jesus promises that to anyone who comes to get rid of the burden. He promises. If he doesn't, he's a liar. That's how certain you can be. If you come with burdens to, for him to remove, he promises to release your burdens from your sin-sick, shriveled-up soul. Bless God. Right? Bless God. This is what Paul's saying. Where is that sense of blessing you had when the gospel came to you? Amazing. Look at 15 again. Where then is that sense of blessing that you had? That satisfaction that comes from the bread of life. That's what Jesus says of himself, isn't it? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger or what? Thirst. That's Jesus' words. Wow. He's the satisfier of the soul dwelling within. And all of this is the result of Paul's preaching of the gospel. They had a deep gratitude for the preacher. Do you remember Isaiah 52, 15? It's quoted in Romans 10, but it says, How beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news of good things. That's what he's saying here. Do you remember that? <laughs> right? And you saw me as the bearer of good news, and you rejoiced in me. You overlooked my deplorable physical condition and listened to the words of grace of God that came through my mouth, and God in grace converted you and regenerated you and removed the burden of sin and opened your eyes to light, removed the darkness, and you experienced regeneration. And you were content in your soul. Where is that gone? You see how dangerous legalism is? You and I ought to hate it with a passion, an intense passion, as Paul did, willing to look people in the eye and say, no, not, not here. Not here. We will die for that. I can talk boldly about that, but I, by grace, I hope to, to answer that and say, no, 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 not here. Legalism destroys churches, and we will fight hard for grace. Where is that, where is that sense of blessing, he says? Right? Can I 
Can you turn with me to Acts 13? It doesn't speak of his illness, but it is recording Paul's first missionary journey when he did come to the Galatia region. And there's just some fascinating things I want you to pick up here. Um, I don't have time to do all that I want, but in, in chapter 13, if you will find your place there and go to, say, verse 44, 1344. This is going on in the Galatia region, okay? Verse 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled not with joy, but what? It shows how ungodly they are. They are jealous and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, which are the truth of God, and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, Jews, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Now look at what he says in 47. For so the Lord has commanded us. And he quotes an Old Testament scripture to prove that this is what he's doing. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, notice their response. This is what Paul's asking them to remember. They were rejoicing and glorifying. And what were they glorifying? The word of the Lord. And look at the rest. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, what happened to them? They believed. Do you notice the appointment to life happens before the belief? The sovereign grace of God. He appointed some to eternal life. And when they heard the gospel, they believed. He granted them faith because that's what they were appointed to do. They rejoice when they heard this. Keep going. 49. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. The whole region of Galatia. Verse 50. We'll read down to the end of this chapter. But the Jews incited the devout women. You get women mad, you're in trouble. A prominence in the leading men of the city. And instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. 51. They shook the dust off their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. 52, notice the final verse here, kind of summarizing. And the disciples were continually filled with what? Joy and with the Holy Spirit. Where is that sense of blessing, says Paul? Where is that blessing? Back to Galatians. Where is that sense of blessing? Notice what he says in the rest of verse 15. And you, you, Paul testifies to the, the love that he knew that they had for him. Now, they, don't, they, you know, they didn't grow up together, right? They didn't spend years and years together. My point is, look at the love these people have for the Apostle Paul, who was a stranger not too many days earlier. And because of God's grace and power, he knits them together like this. And look at, what, look at the extent of their love in verse 15. Paul testifies, I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Now think about that. Some will say, well, that shows that Paul's 
ailment that made him sick was his eyes. Maybe, okay? But it's at least this. How precious to you are your eyes? Are you willing to give them up for anybody? I don't think so. But these people were willingly, willingly take their eye, if they could, and give them to Paul. They were willing to do that, right? To show how much they loved him. And so Paul is saying, in, re, in trying to get these people to back off of legalism and come back to grace, he's pleading with them in verse 12 and on down to verse 15 that we just read. He's begging them to return, to reject legalism and works righteousness, stay close to Jesus Christ by faith. Remember, he says, how much you love me, the one who brought you salvation. And he needs to call them to remembrance because they no longer think this way. This is what's breaking his heart. In fact, they now see Paul as an enemy. Because look at verse 16. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? It's quite the opposite, isn't it? The most loving thing we can do is tell someone the truth. How you do it might fluctuate. But the truth must be spoken in love, Ephesians 4. Right? We're, we are truth tellers. Paul is showing his love in that he's willing to speak truth even though it might bring trouble, it might bring heartache to him. He was willing to do it to the Corinthians. He's willing to do it to the Galatians. He says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? He is hurt deeply by their rejection. The Apostle Paul is a very passionate man. He, he has the heart of Jesus Christ as do all of us who are born again. But here he's giving expression. He's, he's heard. He says, does my telling the truth make me your enemy? Of course not. What is the truth that he was telling them? Well, the gospel of grace, of course. He's telling them that justification is by faith alone and not by works of the law. The law is not intended, never was intended to justify or to sanctify. It's to bring you to faith in Jesus. And once it's done that, it's no longer needed. The Holy Spirit has replaced Moses. Praise God. And life with Christ is not one of obedience to the law of Moses. It's a life of faith to Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? Well, in case you doubt, go back to Galatians 2. Look at verse 20. Look at 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but notice, Christ lives in me. Now look at what follows. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by obedience to Moses. No, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's life as a Christian, you see. Have I become your enemy to tell you that truth? Quit being legalistic and start living by faith. Now, the apostle was so faithful to Christ and to the Galatians, he's willing to speak the truth, the hard truth, even though it causes problems. But he's not their enemy. He's their loving shepherd. He loves them dearly. The Judaizers, obviously, were promoting such ideas. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Leaven poisons legalism. Must be eradicated whenever you see it in your own heart and in your own body. Right? Legalism is 
destructive. It does not assist us in godliness. It actually takes us backwards. It incarcerates. It shackles. It does not promote freedom. They were saying that Paul hasn't told you the truth. He's actually misleading you by telling you to forsake Moses. I've actually personally received this some years ago by a legalistic cult that I won't. Well, they like to do hospitals. But anyway, they were saying uh, that if you don't keep Moses, you're disobeying God. And if you're disobeying God by not keeping Moses, you're not pleasing God. In fact, and if you don't keep a certain day holy, you will be cast into hell. Right? Um, That's what they're accusing Paul of. And they're saying he's really the enemy. He's the one who's keeping you from pleasing God. When Paul is coming at them with this grace and reminding them from which they have been from which they were saved, and how the blessing they experienced when they were first converted. Paul's not their enemy. The Judaizers are. He goes on in verse 17 to show these false teachers. Please look at verse 17. This, this is really an important verse because this is what false teachers do. This is their motivation. They come after you. Look at the, what it says in 17. They eagerly seek you, not commendably. They come after you with zeal. The idea here is fascinating. They court you like a young man courting a young lady. This is the word. The false teachers court you. What is the goal of courting you? To woo you, right? To win you over. False teachers want to win you over. But notice what Paul says. They do it not commendably. It's not with honor. It's dishonor. It's not legitimate. It's not with good intentions. It's not genuine intentions. This is the motive of every false religion. They, have, they don't have your best interests at heart. They only have their own position, prominence, selfish desires at heart. Okay? Now look at what it says. They eagerly seek you, not commendably. And he goes on to speak of they wish to shut you out. Why? so that you will seek them. Isn't that fascinating? Paul, in staying in this context, specifically, these Judaizers were coming, trying to sort off these Galatian Christians, believers, professing believers, coming to set them apart by the law. You must keep the law. That separates them from Paul and the true grace. While while that false teaching separates them apart, it breaks fellowship, and now the only people they can turn to is who? Back to the Judaizers. As it says here, notice verse 17, so that you will seek them. It it, It sorts off people and puts them in such a position that the only people that will have them and the only people that they feel comfortable and safe with is the false teachers in their lives, right? And so Paul is saying... Am I your enemy by telling you the truth? These false teachers seek you and want to woo you, and they're courting you, but it's with bad intentions. And they're sorting you off so that the only people you will seek is them. He goes on to say, please look at the rest of verse 18, but in contrast 
Notice he's not condemning. This is really fascinating, verse 18. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. It's okay to be wooed and sought after by religious people as long as it's the true gospel. You see, what Paul is saying, he's not jealous that the Judaizers are there and got their attention. He's, he's not jealous that these Galatians are looking at other teachers. He is, he is zealously defending because the teachers to whom that have their attention are false teachers. If the teachers, if the Judaizers were gospelizers, Paul would be praising God, wouldn't he? Yes, he's not jealously guarding these are my people. He's just saying it's good if people, true, believe, true teachers, true preachers want you because they want to take you to Christ. You see, not for them, right? I want you to hear my gospel, not for my sake, you see. I want to hand you over to Christ. That's what Paul's saying. It's good to be sought after. And he's contrasting himself with the false teachers because the goal of the false teachers is found at the end of verse 17 so that you will seek them. Paul never says that. Paul wants to deliver you to Christ. You see? Okay, verse 18. It's good always to eagerly sought in a commendable manner. Notice what he goes on to say. Not only when I am present with you. That's, that's basically saying, I'm not guarding as you jealously as mine. He goes, I want you to be sought after commendably even if I'm not there. Even if Peter showed up or any other gospelizer, Barnabas and Silas, whoever, Eduardo, right? <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's about the gospel. It's about Christ. And so Paul is all about that. And so he's showing how much he loves them, you see, um, as John MacArthur said, a quote here, he says, Most cults show keen interest and even affection toward prospective members, promising them great personal fulfillment and happiness. As with the legalism of the Judaizers, the true nature of their spiritual enslavement is hidden, cloaked. The Judaizers had no interest in the Galatian believers beyond entrapping them in legalism. They were like the scribes and Pharisees to whom Jesus said, quote, You travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Matthew 26, 23. Their true wish and objective was to shut out the Galatians from God's grace and gain recognition and acceptance for themselves as it shows up when they say that they may seek them, right? The true motivation was to make a good showing in the flesh, as chapter 6 says, so that they wouldn't be persecuted. They wanted to win over converts to legalism so that they would not be persecuted. They didn't care about them at all. Do you remember in Philippians... Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 15 through 18. Remember, he's imprisoned when he writes Philippians. And he writes, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. It's interesting. Both of those groups are preaching the truth. Okay? The latter the goodwillers, do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former, 
proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Isn't that fascinating? You could preach Christ out of a bad motive, but yet people would get saved through the true gospel. What's Paul's response? What's his conclusion? Next verse. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I rejoice. It's about the gospel. It's about the gospel. Back to Galatians as we tie this up. Look at verse 18 here. He's going to speak of his own relationship when he gets down here. He, he sought them for the gospel's sake. And when you come to verse 19, you see his desire for them. Here, here, here he's going to reveal his heart and love for these people. And it really should be the heart of every pastor, really. Because notice what his past. He says, Mi kindred. <laughs> I looked it up in the German Bible, and that's it. It's my word. <laughs> Mi kindred. Right. With whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. What a passage. What a verse. His desire is that of a shepherd. His love for them shown by the term that he uses here. This term, my children, is the only place in Paul's epistles that he uses this phrase. Gospel John, he uses it all over. Right? If you go to 1 John, he uses it everywhere. My little children, my children. Apostle Paul, this is the only place he uses this. Right? It shows his heart. And this, this is in a context of um, confrontive, and doctrinal, theological argumentation. He stops that and he shows his heart. He pleads with them to remember. And then he says, Me kindred, me little children, my, my little kids, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. This is absolutely fascinating to me. The word labor, ladies would know what this is who have had children. This is not labor of work like building a fence. This is labor in the pangs of birth pangs. Right? In, in the, this is literally birth pangs. What he says here, my children with whom I am again like a mother in labor. Fascinating. Huh. Notice in verse 19 the word again. With whom I am again in labor. What? Yeah, that's, that should strike you as kind of odd because it is odd. And just as strange as it would be in the physical sense, it is in the spiritual sense. Do you see what he's saying here? He says, am I going to have to give birth to you all over again? The first one didn't take. <laughs> you know, It was a trial run. Um, wow. Paul, again, he's saying he's comparing himself to a mother who's already gone through labor and given birth and now in labor all over again. This is not normal, of course. But isn't it fascinating? Paul, in verse 19, he's the one in labor. And notice, out of love, he is willing to endure labor again. Now, I'm married to a mother, and I know other mothers. That's a stretch. <laughs> Do that again? <laughs> Without an epidural? <laughs> right? <laughs> That's a tough sell. But how much... 
the point is the love of Paul. He's willing to go through this again for their sake. What was the first time? If it's to be again, what is the first time? Well, the first time is when he came in sickness and preached the gospel in Acts 13, and God converted them, apparently. You see, he's like, as Paul often says this, he's like a spiritual father and mother, right? Listen to 1 Corinthians 4.15. Just listen to this. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus... I became your father. How? Through the gospel. Spiritual father, spiritual begotten, right? The one who preaches Christ and the one comes to, that's, that's the labor is formed and the child is born, right? Through the preaching of the gospel. Philemon, you remember from prison and he sends back um, Onesimus. Listen to what he says about Onesimus. Onesimus, by the way, was saved when he went to find Paul in Rome and heard the gospel from the prisoner Paul. He says in Philemon 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Right? So it's the gospel bringing life through you that makes you a spiritual parent of the one who's responded to it. Okay? All right. Now, in Galatians 4.19 here, my children, my little children, with whom I am again in labor and the birth pangs, of, of parturition until Christ is formed in you. The goal of being in labor is what? Christ formed in you. Okay? Fascinating. It's the apostle who's the one in labor, and it's Christ being formed in the Galatians. The word form is fascinating. It, it, takes, it means to take on the appearance which corresponds to the inner essence the inner nature. It's to be in one's likeness. It's, it's not so much physical as it is in character or nature. Okay? It is to, think of this now, to be in the form of Christ, that Christ formed in you, to take on his characteristics in nature. It's to think like him. It's to speak like him. It's to act like him. It's to love like him. It's to hate like him. It's to forgive like him and so forth. What is Paul saying? I do not see Christ in you, little children. But I'm willing to go again into labor until Christ be formed in you. Wow. To take on the characteristics of the Lord. This is the work of God, this, this form, Christ's form in me, right? This is the work of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, by faith in Christ. It's certainly not by works of the law. How does this come about in one's life? It's fascinating. The verb here in verse 19, until Christ is formed in you, is in the passive voice. Passive means you receive the work. You receive the, the action, okay? So like an embryo in the womb is passive as it grows and takes on the characteristics of the DNA, so too the Galatians are passive in this Christ formation in them. They're going to receive it. That's I just fascinating. So the believer is passive in this work that's being emphasized here. Okay? This is not the put off and put ons. That's not what this is. This is different. Okay? You are acted upon by God. 
He uses others like Paul and others. But the glorious work of this formation in your soul of the likeness of Christ is the work of sovereign God. Okay? Sovereign grace indeed. Now think it with me. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Anyone is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creature. He's a new creation. Well, chew on that a minute. A new creation. That means you ain't who you used to be. <laughs> right? Right? It, it's a different deal. A new creature. The old has passed and the new has come. Glory to God. Right? Second Peter 1 says, We are partakers of the divine nature. If you are in Christ, you are a, you have, you are a sharer in the divine nature. The very nature of God is why we're new creatures. 1 John 3, 9 says, His seed is, abides in you. His seed, sperma, his, his, just, just like a child and the embryo that's being developed naturally, right? The, the characteristics are determined by the DNA. So too, if God's seed is in you, whose DNA is dictating your characteristics? Do you see? That's why 1 John says anyone in Christ cannot sin because his seed is in you. You see? That's 1 John 3, 9. Well, the, the result of what we're speaking here, this new creature, this divine nature that we partake, the seed of God in us is producing this characteristics, this form, this, 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 this nature of Christ. That's why Moses can't do that. Legalism kills that. We must eradicate it. We must stand firm against it and say, not in this house. Not in this house. Because if so, Christ died needlessly. And it's not that we're not tempted into legalism because we all are. It's what you do when you're confronted with it. Shows the reality of your salvation. Right? Because if you belong to Jesus Christ, you will not knowingly continue in legalism because it's not of grace. That's what Paul is saying. I'm perplexed about you in verse 20. At the end of that verse, he says, I'm perplexed. I, I, I'm, I'm tossed to and fro. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really settled about you, Galatians, because you're so willing to abandon Christ to go to legalism. After you've tasted of the Spirit. It's crazy. It's crazy. Now notice in 419, he says, With whom I am again in labor until Christ be formed in you. Can I just, throw, I'm going to rifle through these things just because I want to. <laughs> um, Christ is in us in Galatians 2.20. In Ephesians 3.17, Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. In Romans 8, 9, the Holy Spirit, in other places as well, indwells us permanently, presently. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God, those who are born again, converted. 2 Peter 3, 18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That, that is... Part of this form that is going to grow. To grow in his grace is to become like him in his grace. And the knowledge is the personal, intimate, experimental knowledge of God, Jesus Christ. To know him more intimately. We are to grow in that. How does this happen? 
How does, how does laboring that Paul's mentioning here end up in Christ formed in the Galatians? Listen to Ephesians 3.8. This is part of the process. To me, the very least of all saints, the, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Now listen, the unfathomable riches of Christ. How does Christ be formed? You must be exposed from the scriptures, the unfathomable riches of Jesus Christ. That's how you grow in grace. That's how Christ is formed in you. You hear the gospel of grace, which is the unfathomable riches of Christ. Not legalism, not moralism, but Christ. Christ before you. This is how we do it. The Spirit takes that gospel, that truth, and changes that person. Remember, you receive that. You're passive in that. Listen to Colossians 1, 27 through 29. To whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what is that? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. We proclaim, as a result of that, we proclaim presently, now, preach to you Christ admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, he says, I labor, not like a mother, but like a ditch digger, <laughs> labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. You see, this is his goal. This is every pastor's goal, that those who hear him become like Christ. And over time, a congregation starts to change under the faithful teaching of the Bible because the Holy Spirit's going to work that into your lives and we start to change and we become more like Jesus Christ. Amen? I want to be part of that. Listen to 2 oh, Corinthians 3.18. Listen, it all weaves together, man. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding, I like that word, beholding as in a mirror, reflection, the glory of the Lord. What's the result of beholding the glory of the Lord? Our being, present tense, transformed, metamorphosized into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. You see, we preach Christ, the unfathomable riches, the, the, the content of this glorious person, Jesus Christ, is always put forward, always put forward. We are gazing, beholding His glory. It's like staring into a light and then closing your light. You still see that light. It's made an imprint on inside your eyes. To gaze on the glory of Christ is to be then imprinted by that glory and changed to that glory from glory to glory to glory. That's what Paul is saying. I am willing to be in labor again that Christ be formed in you. And it's not through legalism. It's through faith in Christ. Look to Christ. See Him glorious. Yield to Him. Philippians 3.10. There's more. I'm almost finished. That I may know Him, he says. Philippians 3.10 that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. This is to know him. This is what it means to know him. The power of his resurrection. That's, that's life-giving power to that which was once dead. That's to know Christ. Secondly, and the fellowship of his sufferings. And then this, 
being conformed to his death. What does that mean? Briefly. His death was a self-sacrifice for the atonement of sinners. We too can be conformed to that similar death, though we're not going to atone for anybody. But we are willing to die in order to get that message to somebody. That's to be conformed to his death, a self-sacrifice for the sake of the cross. So we, when we are willing to do that, we then are being conformed to his death, into the likeness of his death. And that is to then understand the power of the resurrection because you are having fellowship with his sufferings. Again, it's conformity. A couple more here. Do you know you've been predestined by God to be conformed to the image of his son? So when Paul says, man, I, I, I'm not sure I see the image of God in you, but I'm willing to go back into labor and preach Christ to you again and pray for you as though you never heard the gospel, that Christ be formed in you because those whom he saves have been predestined to be conformed to his image so that Christ is the firstborn of many brethren. It's not even about us. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. That's yet in the future. I will take on a physical appearance of Jesus Christ. You won't recognize me. See, where'd that fat little preacher go? <laughs> that guy looks like Jesus. And aren't you glad 1 John 3, 2 is in your Bible? Now listen to this. Remember, we've been talking about preaching Christ so that we can behold Christ and look on Christ to be changed into his image. Listen to 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are, for a fact, children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will what? Be like him because we will see him just as he is. Well, isn't that fascinating? Because you will see him as he is, you will be just like him. Until he comes in that physical appearance, where do you see Jesus Christ? Perfectly in the scriptures. And when you preach the gospel and the glorious riches of Christ and you gaze upon it and you meditate on it and you yield and you pray to be like him, he starts to conform you to him. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what the church is a bunch of little. That's why we're called Christians. Little Christ. Formed into his image. So then this is the goal of every pastor. This is Paul's goal for the Galatians. He's been coming at them with doctrine and theology, but now he comes at them with his heart. And he says, I plead with you. Please, don't fall into legalism. Follow the gospel of grace. Battle for grace. Since we're all prone to legalism, let us take this serious and to eradicate any form of it that you find in your life. In other words, how do you know that you have a legalistic tendency? Here's, here's one thought. How do you see your relationship to God when you sin? How do you, is it broken? Is it severed? Is God angry with you? Is God going to throw you away? You're no longer worthy because you sinned. Do you know what I'm saying? The, the, the Catholic system is to do penance. That's pride. 
You're showing God just how sorry you are for your sin. Christian is repentance. Christianity is to come to God and say, Lord, thank you for this for the forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. I confess my sin to you and I know that Christ died for me. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the forgiveness that's found in Jesus. Give me the grace to forsake the sin and pursue righteousness. That's a whole different animal. Do you see? You're standing and resting on the grace of God, the grace of the gospel. But if you have legalistic tendencies, you see your relationship with God based on your performance. I'm a good little boy because I keep all these rules. But my heart's filled with dead men's bones. You know what I'm saying? So check your heart. Seriously check your heart. And rejoice. The tomb is empty. And you're forgiven of all your sins, Colossians 2.13. Amen? Paul says, I want to be with you so I can change the tone of my voice, my writing, because I am perplexed. Why are you doing this? Let's pray before we run out of air. (laughs) Oh, Maximus, I tried. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the grace. We ask that you would give us the grace to see the legalistic tendencies that we have. And I ask that you would grant us each the ability to root them out and forsake them and to put them to death and to walk in grace to walk in grace, to follow our Lord and Savior by faith. If anyone here, Lord, doesn't know you, is not right before you, I ask that you would save them. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.